Topic for this evening, why did Antiochus IV persecute the Jews? Okay. Well, next week, n- next week we'll discuss at length the sources uh, through which we know the story, the books of Maccabees and how they disagree with each other and the various theological agendas that each book had, and the sophisticated and nuanced understandings of the persecution from a somewhat contemporary Jewish point of view. But that's through the eyes of religion and through uh, the cosmic significance of things. I want to look tonight at the standpoint of Antiochus himself, not as just a generic Russia who doesn't like Jews and therefore is going to do something bad, but what was motivating him, specifically him at that time, at that place, to do bad uh, to the Jews and to persecute Judaism. With the premise being that the heathen kings who ruled over the land of Israel, for the most part, did not persecute Judaism. That from the Babylonian conquest in 586, all through the next millennium, you have a, a, a long list of heathen kings who rule over the Jews of Eretz Israel, and other than Antiochus IV and Hadrian, nobody ever abolished Judaism. Everyone else may have had a hostile relationship politically with the Jews of the Holy Land, but they allowed the religion to flourish, or at least didn't interfere. So why was Antiochus IV different? Well, let's look at his personal story. So Antio- Rome defeated Syria in the year 190 at the Battle of Magnesia. And Antiochus IV, who was the brother of Seleucus IV, who was his predecessor, and the son of Antiochus III, he was taken hostage to Rome. This is a standard practice in the ancient world. When you have a battle between two great empires and one side wins and one side loses, the loser isn't totally defeated. They still retain various dominions. But, as a show of obeisance to the the power that won, you have to give political hostages, who live as VIPs under something of an arrest situation, a house arrest situation, uh, in luxury um, away from home. So Antiochus IV is living in the lap of luxury as an arrestee uh, in Rome for about 13 years, from 189 to 176 or 175 BCE. While he's in Rome, he observes the greatness that is the Roman Republic. And we shall see that during his tenure as king of of the Seleucid Empire, he will try to mimic Roman ways. Um, When he's elected, uh, when he becomes king in 175, it's through uh, devious means. Number one, he escaped from his hostage situation in Rome. He wasn't released, he escaped. And having made it to points further east across the border into the Seleucid Kingdom, he had to contend with other um, claimants to, uh, to the throne. Notably, Seleucus IV's son, who would have been the Antiochus V, uh, and the nephew of Antiochus IV, but the kid was five years old and was a pushover. Ptolemy uh, VI, who was another nephew, who was the king of Egypt, but yet by being the, the son of the sister of everybody else, theoretically had a claim on Syria as well, was also in the fray, which will lead to an Egyptian-Syrian war. Whenever you have someone who could claim, in theory, both kingdoms, they want to grab it for themselves. So there's going to be a war very, very soon between Egypt and Syria. But Antiochus is able to, cr- to uh, cross the border and assert for himself uh, the prerogatives of the kingdom. But in doing so, he decides to have himself elected, Roman style, as the tribune of Syria. 
So here the Roman Republic influenced his behavior. He doesn't just want to be an autocrat who rules by fiat, but he wants to be elected the tribune of Syria. Not really, uh, but he wants to create uh, a citizenry, which was the, is the very next point. <laughs> it's a good question. The, the, the people of Antioch, by no particularly uh, official mi- uh, method, just the people would espouse loyalty. I'm voting for you, uh, big guy. That was the, the approach. Some people thought he was crazy. And Yeshomrim, there are those who will say that Epiphanes, his nickname, means the crazy man, the madman. Others say it was not a, a derogatory term, but rather it was a positive one, meaning the illustrious one. But whether it was originally positive or originally negative, the name stuck. And sometimes in the ancient world, derogatory uh, terms end up becoming favored by the, uh, the people it was meant to embarrass. I mean, for example, the Pharisees, the Prushim, Pharisee means someone who departs from the norm. Uh, essentially, it means a heterodox person. And yet the Prushim later took it on as a, a beloved term for themselves. So Epiphanes may have been a nasty uh, nickname, but he liked it. In 175... Antiochus develops a policy of voluntary civic Hellenization of the Jews, and for that matter, of all the subject peoples. And in that year, he um, sells the office of the high priesthood to a man by the name of Jason. We'll call him Jason the Usurper. Why Jason the usurper? Number one, because he usurps the office, uh, the office of high priest from the legitimate holder who was Onias III, Chon Yohashlishi, of the Tzadokite line, the legitimate high priestly line. Is who is Jason? That, is that the one that, uh, uh, that uh, Josephus had uh, mentioned with the Alexander story or not? Yes, th- they were the high priests from the days of King David until the very mo- that very moment. Um, who is Jason relative to Onias? It may have been his brother. Um, that's likely he was uh, of the high priestly family, if not even a, a sibling of the, the previous holder of the office. Why does Antiochus sell it? Number one, it's good to get revenue. You always need money. And if Jason is willing to offer money, good. But Jason is also going to comply with certain preferred uh, policies of Antiochus vis-a-vis Hellenization. Number one, he offers to build a gymnasium in Jerusalem. The gymnasium of Jerusalem was different in that they did not have naked sports events. People wore clothing. In the, uh, the stories about Hanukkah you read in the, in the books, you know, they say, oh, the, the nudity of the, of the Greek games. There was no nudity. In deference to Jewish tradition, things were fairly clean at the Jerusalem gymnasium for the, for the early years. This is in the history? Yes, yes. Okay. Also, uh, educational institutions which will encourage the cultivation of Greek knowledge, was also promised by Jason. And lastly, Jason was, for the, for the bribe price, uh, given the right to select a list, to create a list of Jerusalemites who would become Antiochian citizens. That like Rome had Roman citizens outside the city of Rome, all over the Italian peninsula and beyond, so too Antioch, the Seleucid Kingdom, the Seleucid capital, would have sort of fellow travelers, uh, you know, honorary citizens or even real citizens in other places. 
notably Jerusalem. So Jason will now be given, because he bribed the king, the right to select who is a citizen of Antioch who lives in Jerusalem. And of course, those people will have special privileges that the non-citizens will not have. Of course, who is he going to select? The people who are like-minded and have a, a, a progressive approach towards Hellenization. Okay. Um, Jason is called the usurper to uh, indicate that what he did was steal the office of high priesthood, but also because we have to distinguish between Jason the usurper and Jason of Cyrene. Jason of Cyrene is the author of Second Maccabees, or rather the author of the Greek translation of what had been originally a Hebrew edition of the Second Book of Maccabees. He lives 80 years later and has nothing to do with Jason the usurper, but because they're both named Jason, we have to give a last name, a title, to identify which Jason we're talking about. Okay. Um, in 172, Menelaus bribes the king with an even, even uh, higher price and is able to secure for himself the office of high priest. Jason has to flee to Ammonitis across the river and is now like a persona non grata. Who is Menelaus? So next week we'll talk about how Josephus claims he was the brother of, of Onias and the brother of Jason. However, that's patently false. That was propaganda by Josephus. In fact, Menelaus was not even a Kohen. He was from the tribe of Benjamin, which means that his holding of the office of Kohen Gadol is completely illegitimate. Aside from the fact that he's not from the proper family, he's not even a Kohen. Is he the, uh, the uber-Hellenist that everyone claims he is in, in, in the historical writings, especially the traditional writings? Probably not. He was probably no more of a Hellenist than was Jason, and was not looking to abolish the Torah completely. He simply was willing to work with, intimately, the Seleucid authorities, have a gymnasium in Jerusalem, encourage the the, the study of Greek, and uh, give preferential treatment to Antiochian citizens. But he was not an idolater. It never says in the sources that Menelaus was an idolater. He was guilty of a few things. He was guilty of bringing impurity into the temple. He was guilty of functioning in an office that he really had no business holding. And he may have even suborned murder. Uh, because in the end, Jason uh, is, and Andonias III uh, die grisly deaths, possibly because of Menelaus's intervention. Yeah. Right. <coughs> yes. Did the position enjoy any honor or respect from the citizenry? This, the position enjoyed tremendous honor from the citizenry, and importantly, you could only hold the office if the temporal authorities, meaning the heathen king, agreed to you holding the office. That was a very important rule. So if you didn't have the, um, the legitimacy conferred by, by non-Jewish authorities, you were illegitimate. But if you had that, uh, uh, that permission to hold office, then you were seen as perfectly fine. If you did things that were contrary to the Torah, then the pietists might want you out of office and might har- harass you, which we'll see is exactly what happens and why Antiochus has to intervene. Um, but the office didn't lose its stature. So that when the Hasmoneans eventually take over the office, it's still sacred in the eyes of the public. And precisely because it's sacred, they don't want some of the, uh, the lesser quality Hasmoneans to hold that office. They say, you know, relinquish it. It's not for you. It's still very sacred. Okay. 
in the year 170, war breaks out between Egypt and Syria. This is to be expected, because Ptolemy VI was going to claim the Seleucid throne, and it had been a while since the war, and what, why, do you, why do you bother paying for an army unless you're going to go to war every now and then? Um, and it had been almost 30 years since the 5th Syrian-Egyptian uh, War, at which point in time Syria, the Seleucid uh, dynasty, conquered the land of Israel. That's in the year 200. Remember, the Egyptians held Israel for 100 years. It was a good 100 years, if you remember. Then the Syrians take over, but the Egyptians haven't forgotten the taste of holding Eretz Israel. They want it back. And so we have this conflict. Who wins? So Syria wins. Antiochus IV is victorious in the year 169 before the Common Era. Um, but there was no CNN and Fox News back then. Maybe they had MSNBC, I don't know. But because they didn't have the news channels, precise knowledge of who won and who lost uh, was lacking. And the rumor mill could throw people off course. And the big rumor at that time was that Antiochus had died. So if Antiochus is dead, then Menelaus, who holds the office of the high priesthood only by virtue of having been granted it by Antiochus IV, that that Menelaus is no longer the legitimate high priest. Which means that Jason can come back from exile and try to recover his office. After all, he is at least uh, an Oneid, uh, and could claim uh, that the, the high priesthood belongs to him from, from a Jewish perspective, and the fact that at one point in time he had temporal uh, permission for it as well. So there is a clash between Menelaus supporters and Jason supporters in Jerusalem. Antiochus hears about this, and he believes there's general insurrection. So he comes to Jerusalem, does, does severe damage to Jerusalem, enters the temple and plunders the temple, steals the menorah, strips all the gold off of the various uh, vessels and implements, and walks away with a big pile of cash. So that's the first anti-Jewish action of Antiochus IV. Bear in mind that at this point he's been king for six years. Yes, he sold the office of the Kohen Gadol to two guys who probably shouldn't have held the office, and you could complain about that. But the Torah was still being observed, and the Hellenism that had been introduced was a very benign, moderate form. It's not until 169 that a real Aveira is done by Antiochus for which we could complain bitterly. And why did he do it? He thought there was general insurrection. In fact, there wasn't. It was simply two rival cl- claimants to, to uh, the ecclesiastical office have some goons fighting each other in the streets. So, so he's coming to support Menelaus, but assumes, generally speaking, that the Jews are disloyal. Okay. Which leads to uh, later problems down the road. For the next two years, uh, the pietists don't like the fact that the Hellenists are on the ascendancy. And so they're harassing those who would become citizens of Antioch those on the list, you know, the special list of, uh, of Goyesha Jews. So you have this religious versus irreligious divide, but not uh, rebellion against the Seleucid monarchy. It's just Jews fighting Jews because of varying degrees of assimilation. Was there a Kohen Gadol during this 
time? Yes, Menelaus still functions as the Kohen Gadol. In 167, the king sends Apollonius, the, the, the Misarch, to teach the pietists a lesson. And really, uh, they suffer a terrible blow. Many people are killed in 167. And um, the Jews are attacked on Shabbos. The heathens, knowing that the Jews will not defend themselves on Shabbos, and they could be slaughtered en masse, it's a very big problem. Matityahu will solve that problem by allowing pikuach nefesh docher Shabbat, but the saving of life and defensive war overrides the Sabbath. But that did not yet exist. Something which is very known to us in the halachic literature was not on the books back then. It's a, a chidush of, of Matityahu. Um, and a, a community of sinners is established at Acre. What is Acre? It's it's a uh, it's no that's acre that's a c r e I'm talking about a k r a Acre is a fortified position in Jerusalem whose precise location the archaeologists are still fighting over. Some say it was north of the temple and was a fortified position like the Antonia was in Roman times. Some say it was in the city of David, which is further to the south, but it was on a high hill, uh, possibly what was then called Mount Zion. Uh, we're not exactly sure, but a fortified position at called the Acre, was uh, established where Jewish sinners would reside, and they would become the dominant group within uh, Jerusalem. So, the first big Avera is the sacking of the city in 169. The second big Avera is the attack in 167 and the, sl- the, the massive slaughter of, of, of Jews of Jerusalem. The third big Avera is establishing the Acre, which is a, sort of a, a Jewish slash heathen um, compound in Jerusalem. And the fourth Avera, well, the third of era will, will be also the abolition of Torah. The fourth of era will, will be establishing uh, an Avodah an idol, in the temple, which is done in December of 167, about six or seven months after the third big of era of abolishing the Torah and establishing the heathen colony. Okay, so why is it that Antiochus is so angry and so willing to, to, to bludgeon the Jews again and again and again? Yes, we, th- we know that he thought they were rebellious in 169, but not much had happened since then. The Jews didn't rise up in arms against him that he should do further damage to the interest of Judaism. So, everything Antiochus did has to be viewed in, in light of what the Romans did. The Romans, in the early part of the 2nd century BCE, were intolerant of various... Um, religious cults that existed in, in the Italian peninsula, most notably the cult of Bacchanalia, of the worship of Dionysus, or Bacchus, which is the god of wine. Um, it was a, a recognized deity in the Roman pantheon, but there was this sort of wild and unacceptable behavior by uh, people in the, southern Ita- in the southern part of the Italian peninsula, and they were stamped out through official legislation. And so what Antiochus is going to do is uh, treat Judaism like a rebellious cult, uh, an unreliable religion from a political standpoint that has to be stamped out some way, somehow. Uh, The Jews were regarded as a philosopher race. We mentioned this in the past, that uh, the early Greek scholars who encountered the Jews regarded them as a race of philosophers like the Brahmins of India. Well, Antiochus hated philosophers. He was an enthusiast of uh, the religious Greek culture, not the Greek culture of the philosophers like Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, but rather the religion 
of Greece. He was a Philo-Hellene. Um, and so he already has an axe to grind against Judaism for being too philosophic. Uh, he also thought they were close to the Epicureans in that the Jews are atheists. How are the Jews atheists? That they, they worship nothing. They worship a, a god, but a god that has no form. So you could say they worship nothing. Jews are atheists like the Epicureans. Also, the Jews are lazy like the Epicureans in that Saturday, Shabbos, and Shemitah. Okay? They're self-indulgent. Also, they're effeminate and maybe even homosexual. In what respect? Circumcision. All things anathema to Greek culture. So for these reasons, Antiochus has you know, extra special motivation to do harm to this uh, uh, you know, little small uh, cult in, in, in Judea. To destroy the Jewish philosophy, what must be done? You have to destroy all copies of the Torah and force the elders to violate Judaic rules and to forbid instruction of the youth. So we have in Book of Maccabees a reference to the, the tearing apart of all, all known copies of the Torah. Yeshom uh, Rim, there are those who say that when the Mishnah and Tanis talks about the burning of the Torah scroll by Apostomus, which is a reason for fasting on the, uh, the 17th of Av, or the, 7th, the 17th of Tammuz, is because uh, Antiochus, so-called Apostomus, destroyed copies of the Torah. Um, Jews were also accused of worshipping a donkey. Is that true? That Jews worshipped a donkey? No, of course not. But where is the Jewish God in the Holy of Holies? Who gets to go there? Nobody, the high priest. So you could claim anything you want about Jewish worship. You could say it's close to the religion of Dionysus and, and, and no one would know if you're telling the truth. So this idea, this, this canard that the Jews worshipped a donkey was another reason to, to uh, ridicule them as being superstitious and foolish. Um, the Jews were accused of human sacrifice. All one needs to do is point to the Akedah. As, uh, and also the verse about Molech, that the Jews had to be warned specifically not to offer their children to Molech, which must mean that they did it. Okay? The Jews could accuse... Jew, uh, the king was interested in establishing the pristine religion of the land of Israel. If he's going to get rid of Judaism, he can't just get rid of everything, throw out the baby with the bathwater. He has to replace it with something. The God of Israel is a very serious God. You don't want to offend the God of Israel. So you have to make sure he's worshipped in the right way. Well, what's the right way? The Jews are claiming it's through the, through the Mosaic Code, the Pentateuch. But you need, an idol. You, you need to be able to reject the legitimacy of the Mosaic Code by saying it's a foreign import. How is the Torah a foreign import? It comes from Har Sinai. Where is Har Sinai? Not in the land of Israel. Also, it comes from where? From Bavel, that Ezra brought with him the copy of the Mosaic Torah when he came in 458 under Artaxerxes. So a foreign king, a Persian monarch, imposed the Torah over the Jews. It's a foreign religion. It's not the real religion of Israel, as, was, as exists in the days of the Bible, you know, the bad old days of the first commonwealth, when Jews were, were basically polytheists. Yeah. No. Okay, so he wanted to make sure that he had the correct version of, of the, the religion of Israel, 
But who's going to give him this kind of information? So Greek anthropologists, these Athenian experts, were hired to figure out what is, re- what is the real religion. Also, he relied upon heterodox Jews. We shall see those heterodox Jews are not the uh, sort of the Goyesha Jews who, who adopted assim- uh, assimilation and, and Hellenistic ways uh, in, you know, in the 2nd century BCE. These heterodox Jews are going to be holdovers from the bad old days of the first commonwealth. People who never accepted the full Torah. Now, did they still exist in, the, in 175 and 167? You know, uh, old line polytheistic Israelites? We'll see. Maybe they did. It's a, it's a secret that nobody knows about. Um, Antiochus uh, believed that the corruption of the religion of Israel led to various abuses, like the intolerance of paganism. Remember, the Jews were very intolerant. Were you allowed, to, if you were a goy, to worship an idol in, the, in, the, in Yehud or in Judea from the days of Ezra until the days of the Maccabees? No. What would happen to you? They'd kick you out of there. Or they'd kill you. The Jews were very intolerant. In other provinces where the Jews were not in control, if you wanted to worship some deity other than the local deity, could you get away with it? Yeah, you probably could. Because most people were tolerant. The Jews were not. So according to Antiochus, that's an abuse. That's a, a vice. Also, the kosher laws and circumcision are corruptions that were imposed by later uh, accretions to, to the faith. Um, and that the Jews became a subversive sect as a result of these accretions to their faith. So, um, the abomination of desolation, which is mentioned, the, the Shikutz Mishomem, which is mentioned in the book of Daniel, was constructed on top of a pagan altar, which stood on top of the Jewish altar. It was established on the 15th of Kislev in 167, and sacrifices began on the 25th of Kislev, 167. How is the 25th of Kislev relevant? So we have Hanukkah on the 25th of Kislev because three years later, uh, Judah Maccabee began the, the full functioning of the temple on the anniversary of its desecration. Why was the 25th of Kislev picked in the first place? Possibly because of the festival of Dionysus uh, uh, and festivals related to the 25th of the, tw- of the last month of the, of the calendar year. Um, so the, the selection of 25 Kislev does have pagan overtones. But Hanukkah is not at all a pagan holiday. Hanukkah is simply the Jewish victory counteracting what had been initially a pagan festival. So anyone who tells you Hanukkah is on the 25th because of Christmas, they're, they're not really right. They're, there's, a, there's a shemitz, there's an element of truth to it, but it's wrong for the most part. Okay. Um, what happened in the temple after it was defiled? Well, it, the temple was renamed Zeus Olympius. And prostitution and idolatry were allowed. Uh, Antiochus affixed meteorites to the altar. These were abominations from the sky, not a human form and not an animal form. This is very important. Antiochus is not imposing Greek Hellenic idolatry on the Jews. This is a common myth that people think about the Hanukkah story. Antiochus was not trying to get the Jews to be like him. Okay, this was not Greek idolatry. This was pseudo-Israelite idolatry. No human form, no animal form, celestial forms, meteorites. Okay? It was like the Matseva of the Bible. 
Is a matzeva allowed? Are you allowed to make a matzeva? Yeah. The pasuk says, "Lo takim lecha matzeva asher sanei Hashem lokecha." Do not make a matzeva. God hates it. Where is that pasuk found? What book of the Torah? This is an obvious question. It's in Devarim. Where are you allowed to make a matzeva? Who made a matzeva? Yaakov makes a matzeva. Okay, so the matzeva is an old form of Israelitish worship from patriarchal times. What was the, what was the uh, going to Eretz Israel? Yeah. Uh, was it Avon Griezmann where they had the meneers? Yes. Would that be considered a matzeva? They were stones. Avanim gedolot v'saratau tambasid. Yes, they're, they're, uh, So what's the difference between a stone and a matzeva? I don't know, but the point is that the, the, the ancient Israelite practice was to allow a matzeva. The, the, the later development in Devarim is to forbid a matzeva. God hates it. So Antiochus could claim he is restoring the older form of, of worship. Like at, Beth- at Beit El with, with Yaakov. It was uncut stone. Um... The Mishnah talks about Midot and Avodazara, uh, Matzevot, and stones used for religious worship, and how they're forbidden, but it, it would happen. People did this sort of thing. Also, Antiochus believes that the ban on Matzeva and the ban on Bamot was an unwholesome change in Judaism. What is the ban on Bamot? What are Bamot? Private altars, high places. So the Deuteronomic uh, centralization of religious worship that happens in the days of Yoshiahu, well, first in the days of Chizkiyahu and then in the days of Yoshiahu, uh, was uh, an attempt to stamp out all private altars. And during the, most of the Second Temple period, this was not a problem. It was a big problem in the First Temple period. And the Nevi'im you know, railed against it constantly. And, it's, and it, the, Malach, the Book of Malachim says, so-and-so was a good king, but he didn't get rid of the Bamot. That was his one big Avera. So Antiochus says, eh, Bamot are good. So we're going to establish high places and offer sacrifices all over the province of Judea. All right? Contrary to Torah law. All right? Who are the three deities who are going to be worshipped? Zeus, Athene, and Dionysus are, are the gods that are imposed on Israel. Okay, Prostitution was included in the, in the religious worship. Is that part of ancient Israelite tradition? Well, lo you're not allowed to have a Kadesha, a cultic prostitute, whether male or female, Kadesha Kadesha. The fact that the Torah has to forbid it tells you that people were doing it. Okay? And which great heroic figure that we read about in the past couple of weeks was guilty? Yehuda and Tamar. So if they could point to Genesis chapter 37 of Yehuda and Tamar, then hey, Kadesha is part of the old Jewish religion, the old Israelitish religion. Okay. Um, if these changes had been adopted, then the Jewish religion would have been very similar to the Phoenician and Syrian uh, uh, religions in the neighboring states. The king's hope was that these changes would make the Jews less rebellious and less tyrannically intolerant. What about pig? Why force the Jews to eat pig? So some say it was part of the worship of Dionysus, and others say it was to attack the Jews' unreasonable prejudice against pork. Well, the heterodox Jews were the first to be hit by the king's persecution, because in fact, they were not fully assimilated. They did still keep some of the mitzvot. 
And uh, Elias Brickerman, who was one of the great scholars, is probably incorrect in saying that the heterodox encouraged the king to persecute r- religion. It's probably not true. This was the king's doing. This was a Gentile decision to impose a foreign, uh, effectively a foreign faith on uh, the local population. Menelaus may have, ha- may have had many faults, but he was never labeled an idolater, and we really can't blame him for trying to impose a foreign religion on the Jews. But Antiochus' policy backfired in that it wasn't accepted by anybody, and it just forced Jews to flee to the mountains, where, where they would then mount the rebellion, uh, starting with Matityahu's act of, of zeal in slaughtering and killing the guy who wanted a sacrifice to a pig. So, um, that takes us through the... Uh, the period of persecution of well up to the period of persecution and some of the thoughts on why it was done but now we have to examine how this fits with broader patterns in history so jason the Wait, yeah the book of maccabees yeah There's two books of maccabees one of them relates yeah. to yeah. some extent the, the chronology of the holiday of hanukkah the origins the reasons are yeah yeah Fully, which is not found in the Jewish Bible, but is found in the Catholic Bible. Catholic Bible and the Eastern Orthodox Bible, yeah. So next week we'll talk about at length why that happened. Why is it not in our Bible, but it is in their Bible. Okay, so Jason the Usurper thought that it was possible to um, reconcile the Torah with Antiochian citizenship. He thought so. And uh, contrary to what, it, what is generally believed, the, the Hellenistic high priests did not abolish the Torah. They were guilty of other things, but they, uh, they were Jews. The pious did not object to the Hellenization, but rather to Menelaus' other sins of, of bribery, of murder, of, of, of impiety in the, in, the, in the temple precincts. The pious had never, reason, never really had reason to protest. And the tradition says not to rebel and to be obedient to the king and to accept the authority of the high priest who is appointed by the king. Also, the Torah was being kept. The only departure was the the cultural association with heathens. That was a departure. That in the past it was Am Levadad Yishkon, the people that dwells alone. The viewpoint of Jason and Menelaus is that we don't have to be alone. We can be with others in friendship no, is it is it is it an avera to 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 be friendly with with your neighboring gentile? No. Oh well, no, 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 no. Allowing the, the the other to worship differently is forbidden by the Torah. Torah says very clearly you have to destroy their pla- their high places and their and their and their uh, their altars. That means bechotam titotzun, but matzevotam tishaberun, but asherotam. So everything, every religious cultic institution they have that's in your land has to be eliminated. But if they're Noahide or they're just sort of neutral on religion, there's no problem having any relationship with them. Or for that matter, if they live across the border, being friendly with them. But if you go forward three centuries, he's been saying this is. The prohibitions against having wine and having cheese yes. all seems to lend to that that uh, the previous um, point of view of not really mixing it all. With, uh, okay, so all the bans on uh, social interaction with with Gentiles, what we call mishum chatnut, because of concerns yeah. of intermarriage, are part of the rabbinic or pr- uh, proto-rabbinic 
counter reaction to uh, too much cozying with the heathen in the period of uh, of uh, assimilation here we're, we're talking about. I mean, uh, those halachot don't go back to the days of Moshe Rabbeinu. Those are, uh, go back to the, the earliest strata of the rabbinic period because people were too friendly with the non-Jews of Eretz Yisrael. And so that's a, you know, a safeguard, various safeguards, whether it comes to bread, a Torah, whether it's on bread, whether it's on wine, whether it's on bishul, mostly food items, uh, you know, play it safe. Stay away. This way, it'll avoid uh, too, you know, too cozy of a mingling. Yeah. Yes. What period are we talking about when we see all this Bechan and the Skarkofagai and the, and the holiness that's sending everybody so, the so that's a little different. Matzevot as just a marker uh, of a of a gra- of a grave site is a, is a separate matter. You don't worship that. Or at least not supposed to worship that. I mean, there are probably some people who are theologically off base, uh, especially in the Hasidic world, who don't realize that. But you're not supposed to worship a gravestone. It's simply a, a marker. Okay. So, in the first Maccabees, it says that lawless men rose in Israel and seduced people to make a pact with the Gentiles, and that, uh, you know, Al Yishkon was being violated. The king allowed the people to not observe the Torah and to build a gym, and some people reversed their brit milah. This is the uh, the reverse circumcision that's mentioned uh, in rabbinic literature, um, and the king imposes a death penalty after 167 for those who, f- who will not comply with forced Hellenization. So first, you have a period of about eight years of of, of uh, voluntary cooperation in cultural matters, and then you have coercive uh, measures. What are, what are included? No more ola, no more burnt offering, no more mincha, no meal offering, no more bris, no more sefer Torah, no more Shabbos, no more kashris. Okay, by the way, what's the problem with ola and mincha? I'm just picking a random thing. So, it, because in, in Hellenic culture, there was no daily sacrifice, and there was no meal offering. There were approximately monthly sacrifices. So, uh, periodically, there would be a, a, an animal slaughtered and offered on the pagan, sacri- on the pagan altar in the, in the temple from 167 to 164. But the notion of the olat tamid was anathema uh, to the heathens. Okay. Also wasn't eaten, yeah. Right, you, could, you, you can have a, a logical objection to, a, to what they call the Holocaust offering, the totally burnt offering. Okay. Um, now, why did the punitive actions happen? So, the first action, which was the sacking of Jerusalem in 169, we explained was the result of miscommunication between Antiochus and the Jews. The Jews were simply duking it out between Menelaus and Jason over who's going to be the high priest on the rumor that Antiochus was dead, and he comes in and causes damage. The second big avera of the, the sacking of Jerusalem in 167 was probably the result of uh, Menelaus losing control of the situation. And he being the appointed man of Antiochus, Antiochus has to come to defend the integrity of his job. Okay? The ban on the Torah and the imposition of a foreign cult and the, uh, the abomination of desolation are difficult to explain. And here's why it's difficult. The imposed cult was neither Antiochus' own religion nor the religion of the Jews. Now, it's common in history 
for a foreign overlord to ban a native religion. They don't like it, you can't do it. It's also common in the history of the world for a foreign overlord to impose his own religion on the aboriginal peoples. All right, It's my way or the highway. So it's common to say, you can't do this or you must do what I do. It's also common for a foreign overlord to impose a minority uh, faction's religious viewpoints on the majority. Where did that happen? That happened when Ezra came from Babylonia to Israel and imposed the Torah on all the Jews of Eretz Israel, who previously were not really all that religious, and then uh, get rid of foreign wives, and you know the rest of the story. But what never, ever happened in history was that a foreign overlord would impose a new cult on, a, on a, a conquered people where that cult was neither the conquered people's religion nor the foreign overlord's religion, but rather a third religion that made no sense. So why does Antiochus do this? That's the question that the historians were all struggling to find an answer to. It has no parallel in the history of the world. The contemporary Jewish writers did not think about it about the bizarre nature of things, all they said was that it's God's wrath against us for doing something wrong that we're being punished. So Antiochus is the rod in the hand of the Almighty. He's the stick in the hand of the Almighty. And as for the fact that what he does makes no sense, they didn't worry about that. All they knew was they couldn't do Torah, and it troubled them, and they were going to die for it. Okay. Was it insanity? Was Antiochus insane? Probably not. The rest of his, uh, of his deeds as a king do not bear the hallmark of insanity. Tacitus, the, the later Roman author, says that he simply wanted to remove the superstition from the Jews. But why then and why in that way? So, Victor Cherikover, who is one of the great historians of the mid-20th century, he said that the king put pagans at the Acre, who then tried to tinker with the local temple cult, but the Jews rebelled, so the king outlawed Judaism. That's Cherikover's theory. That Goyim were put in Jerusalem at the Acre, thinking that they have to worship at the local shrine. They try to, but they don't want to worship in the way of the Jews, so they play around with the service and do things their way. The Jews don't like any interference. Of course, it makes perfect sense that Jews wouldn't want interference. And so they rebel with force of arms, and Antiochus has no choice but to come down hard against the Jews and to abolish Judaism. That's Cherikover's point of view. But he's completely wrong. Uh, Why? Number one, the Acre was not primarily uh, um, filled with, with Gentiles. Rather, it was heterodox Jews who were disinterested in the temple cult. And there was no rebellion, armed rebellion, before Matityahu in 166. So this theory is completely wrong. Elias Berkman, another one of the great scholars, claimed that the king imposed a new cult at the request of Menelaus. Um, which would, would then fit the idea that the minority tried to impose their will on the majority by using a foreign king to get their way. But the problem with this is that he's also wrong. Menelaus actually petitioned the king not to impose the new cult. Because after all, as much as he was heterodox, he was still a Jew and not a Shagetz. And he didn't, he didn't want to worship idols. Okay? And the heterodox were the earliest victims of this uh, new cult. Also, and this is a key point, if, you have, if you're a king, and you have uh, an agent out in the field, and that agent is inept, and you need to consistently uh, send in the reserves, the backup units, to bolster this agent's uh, exercise of authority, 
Are you going to take a risk for that guy? No. He's lucky he still has a job, that he hasn't been fired and killed. So Menelaus, in both 169 and 167, had to be supported with force of arms because either he was fighting Jason or he was fighting the pietists who don't like his, uh, his exercise of the office of Kohen Gadol. So is the king about to impose a new cult, a new uh, basically foreign religion on the Jews just because Menelaus asks for it? Of course not. It's a ridiculous uh, uh, assumption. Why not? He wants to, he wants to but it, it, it backfired and it made sense that it would backfire. It but it, it's, it's illogical that he, would, that he would double and triple down on Menelaus when the guy wasn't getting the job done. No, he put, he put him back. He realized the guy's not powerful. He put him in the religion. He gets, slowly the guy was pushed down. Uh, it doesn't look like that's what happened. Now, Jonathan Goldstein, who wrote the authoritative work on the book of Maccabees, 1 and 2, uh, he wrote the critical edition for the Anchor Bible. Uh, he says it was the king's own idea, that this was not the result of bad Jews trying to impose a foreign uh, system of worship on the good Jews. Not at all. It was the king's own idea. And that Menelaus dragged his feet on implementation from April until December because he knew how unpopular it would be. Aside from the fact that he may have personally opposed it, he knew it would cause a a real backlash that Jews would not uh, simply accept the abrogation of Torah and the imposition of a strange religion in their Beit HaMikdash. So eventually the king had to send his own agents to impose the cult because Menelaus wouldn't comply. The king knew that, the people who, uh, that many people feared the God of Israel. And they didn't want to interfere in the worship of that God. I'm not just talking about Jews. I'm talking about all peoples, even the Gentiles who lived in the, in the country. They understood that, that in the pantheon of deities, the God of Israel is a legitimate God, and you can't defend him because the bad things might happen. So you have to have the true worship of, of that deity in order to keep him happy. But what is the true nature of that worship? So the king invents a pristine version of Yahadut, which includes eating pork and sacrificing on high places. The Jews of of Acre were not Hellenized Jerusalemites. No. Who were they then? So according to Goldstein, remember there was a a Jewish temple in Egypt at Elephantine? Okay, so that temple was for Jewish soldiers, mercenaries, in the armies of first the Persian kings, and then later uh, the um, well, first the Babylonian kings, then the Persian kings, and who who were uncomfortably situated next to indigenous Egyptians, who later destroyed that temple in the year 408. So that temple was a full service Beit Hamikdash, so to speak, uh, with sacrificial worship. But did they worship God, like the, the, the Jewish God as we know it? Not really. They observed a syncretistic religion with, yes, what we would call our deity, but also with a consort deity, a female deity, and occasionally throwing a bone to the Egyptian deities. Basically, it was not monotheistic. It wasn't even monolatry. It was polytheism with an element of the old Israelitish religion. When that temple was destroyed, what happened to the worshippers there? What did they do? If you remember, they petitioned the Jews of Jerusalem, the authorities of the Jerusalem temple, to help them out. And the Jerusalem authorities said no. They refused to cooperate. So then they petitioned the the Samaritan authorities, who said, all right, fine, we'll try to help you out. In the end, a compromise was reached, whereby they would no longer do sacrificial worship of animals, only of meal offerings and libations. 
Uh, but in the end, even that didn't last long because the, the native Egyptians destroyed the temple and kicked everybody out. Okay, so that's one example of an old uh, uh, biblical, uh, first temple era, like biblical era style Judaism, sort of the polytheistic Judaism of the ancient past, that still existed in second temple times. What happened to those people? We don't know. But they weren't the only such group. There were other mercenary uh, soldiers in the armies of the Hellenistic uh, world who were Jews who never accepted the full Torah, who accepted parts of the Torah, okay, but not the full thing. So, um, therefore, it was at Accra that these kinds of Jews lived. And uh, they were arguably indigenous, and that the objectionable parts of the Torah from uh, Antiochus's point of view was brought to the land of Israel by Ezra from Babylonia from the outside. And that the real religion was the religion of these curious polytheistic Jewish cults that survived somehow, some way, and he placed them at Acre. The delay in implementation of, of the uh, of Odazara was due to the indifference by the people at Acre towards imposing their will over other Jews. They were simply satisfied to worship God in their way. They couldn't care less what happened on Mount Moriah in the temple. All they cared about was doing what they had been accustomed to doing. And so it, the, the king needed his royal agents to get rid of the Torah scrolls and to impose a foreign religion because nobody, no Jew, as different as they might have been, wanted to impose that on anybody else. Why, why do people impose religion on someone else? Okay, but also out of love. I love you so much, I want to save your soul. I don't want you to be damned to hell for eternity, so I'll force you to take baptism so you, so you the Jew, will not die without uh, this, the salvation of Christ. That's what the Christians would say. I love you so much. Uh, that's a uh, mishagas. Uh, in the ancient world, nobody believed in that at all. That's a later, later invention of medieval times. In the ancient world, I'll do what I want to do, and I'll go to heaven if I think of there's a heaven, and you'll do whatever you want to do, and if there's no heaven, there's no heaven. If there's no hell, there's no hell. So that's why nobody was looking to impose anything on anybody else within the, uh, the Jewish world, unless there was a political angle of coercive Hellenization. Okay, so this religion of, uh, of Antiochus that he's trying to give to the Jews, it was what we might call a patriarchal religion. A patriarchal religion. Um, if you go back to the book of Bereshit, the book of Bereshit, what is there in the book of Bereshit that um, you could say is Jewish practice? What's in Bereshit that's Jewish? Brit Milah. Brit Milah, okay. Yeah. Shabbat. Sh- uh, Shabbat, okay, yeah. Because it's in the Parshish Bereshit, it's in the Genesis narratives. Gidon Asha. Gidon okay, fine. Okay. All right, the ban on nudity. Because Adam and Chava. The ban on intermarriage because the Benot Chait were seen as unacceptable to the matriarchs. You know, Katsdi Bechayim Ipnei Benot Chait. Alright? But, you're allowed to have dealings with Gentiles, and you're allowed to eat pork. So, most of the kosher laws do not appear in the Book of Bereshit. Alright? Most of the Sabbath laws also don't appear in the Book of Bereshit, only the notion that it's a blessed day. Alright? There are elements of religion... That, that go back to the Avot. 
that if you just accepted the Bereshis narratives, you could say, this is Jewish. If you didn't accept Shemos through Devarim, you could throw out everything else. That's the kind of religion of the people who were at Acre, who Antiochus was hoping would be uh, you know, the, the influential force in Judea for uh, this new religion. But it failed. So why did it fail? Next week we'll talk about it at length. But the reason it failed is because by the 160s, the Torah had been firmly established in Judean life, such that people were willing to die for it. The stories of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and Daniel in the lion's den, so the Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego going to the fiery furnace, and Daniel in the lion's den, tell us what? That people are willing to sacrifice their lives rather than break the rules, especially when it's a very serious rule. Of course, these stories are placed mythically into a period of the Vuchanetzar, but what, what they're, when they're written, they're written at a time of persecution under Seleucid rule. The, true, the good Jews are going to fight to the death if they have to fight. The only problem is fighting is against the tradition. You're supposed to be you know, pacifically oriented, uh, not... Okay, where does the Torah say that? Okay, okay. So, the, to- the Torah does say that you should fight back against foreign, king- foreign uh, uh, regimes when you are an independent people. But the Torah doesn't say anything about fighting back when you were a subject people, since that's not part of you know the the, the, the chronology of the Torah. What? To to. Okay, but, but the Nevi'im, especially Yirmiyahu, says, "Don't cause trouble. Basically, be a good citizen of wherever you are, and under whoever's ever authority you find yourself." Okay, so okay, all right, so the the Jews for a long time believed it was forbidden to rebel against a, a foreign king. Now, that, was, that made a lot of sense so long as the foreign king wasn't persecuting your religion. As long as it was economic uh, uh, difficulty or political difficulty, uh, an issue of rights, uh, you could say that God is angry with us and so we're suffering and this king is the, is the tool in the hands of God to make, us, uh, to make trouble for us. Since this is the first ever religious persecution of Judaism... It's a new concept. Are we allowed to fight back under those circumstances? Or shall we simply take passive martyrdom? And for the earliest uh, victims of Antiochus' crusade, it was passive martyrdom. But what will, what will that eventually accomplish if everybody takes that route? The destruction of religion, the destruction of Am Yisrael. So it makes sense that someone, early, early on in the, persecutu- the, per- the period of persecution would say, enough is enough, let's change the policy. So, Matityahu is the one who does that. Who is Matityahu? Well, he's from Modi'in. There are two theories about where he really comes from. One says, he's from Jerusalem, but flees to Modi'in, into the hills, to the mountains, because during the, the persecution, 
you don't want you want to stay away from the Seleucid uh, soldiers who are implementing the policy. Just basically get out of the way, hide, and you know under cover of, uh, of rocks and darkness, you can observe your rituals to the best of your ability. But the other point of view is no, he was not not from Jerusalem at all. He was from Modi'in originally. He's a backwater province uh, priest. He's not a powerful figure. Uh, he's a nobody. He's not attached to the temple hierarchy. But the Onayids are the high priestly clan, and Matityahu is from the, the clan of Yehoyariv, which is a lesser tier Kohanic clan, and therefore he has no business deciding national policy or the halakha. So for him to lead a rebellion, who is, who is he to do it? And who is he to say you're allowed to fight on Shabbos, contrary to the earlier assumptions of, of Torah law? So we'll stop here, but next time we're going to look at the two books of Maccabees, who wrote them, why were they written, and the totally diametrically opposite uh, opposing viewpoints they have about who among the Hasmoneans were heroes and who were villains. Was Matityahu a good guy or a bad guy? So one version of the story is that he was a bad guy. But we'll find out next week.